Well, well, you know, we have several women who uh, buy these tapes and listen to this thing. I, I don't really like that too much. Because uh, to be quite honestly, I'm not even thinking of them when I talk to you. Uh, and uh, so I, I just want to share something Jim Ramirez said. He said that Revelation teaches that there will be no women in heaven. And the reason is we know there are 30 minutes of silence. Enough said. All right. Now, women, if you're listening to this tape, I don't want any emails. I don't want any letters. You can just forget it. That was a joke, kind of. All right. Turn to Revelation chapter 10, men, who are going to be very quiet for those 30 minutes. going to enjoy it a lot. Uh, and women will be there, actually. And they will be absolutely transformed. <coughs> All right. Revelation chapter 10. Now, you remember uh, we uh, had the, the, the seven seals. We had six seals, and then we had that silence in heaven in chapter 8. And, but for chapter 6 and uh, 7, or rather chapter 7, we had an interlude between the sixth and the seventh seal. That was a very important interlude. Because we saw that during the time of all these judgments of God, which is in our period right now, all these natural disasters and warfare and other evils that are taking place around us, that God has sealed or marked uh, His own people. And we saw that the Holy Spirit does that sealing. So it's not a literal number on your forehead or something like that. It's that the Spirit comes into your heart. And Ephesians chapter 1 says that the Spirit seals us. And we saw elsewhere that that seal is the Spirit coming to live in us, and that's the down payment of our inheritance. In other words, we're going to get this huge inheritance, the whole cosmos. <laughs> we're going to, it's going to be ours. So we're not poor. We're very wealthy. We just haven't gotten our money yet. Uh, so I hope that makes you feel better today when you're struggling with your finances. You're very wealthy. You just haven't gotten it all yet. You're going to get it when you get to heaven. But meanwhile, we taste it. We know it's coming, we can taste it, and we have the first experience of what it means to be in the presence of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to receive the Spirit, is that we're getting a taste of heaven. And so we saw that in in chapter 7, God marks His people, and He gives them a foretaste or a down payment of that which is to come. So we're marked out by God. We're branded by Him. We also saw in chapter 7, in that little interlude, that for those who have gone on ahead of us, even those and especially those who have suffered because they proclaim the gospel, and there are millions and millions of them, they're robed in white robes, they're, they're there in the spirit, they don't have their bodies back, but they're robed in white robes, they are, they are triumphant, and they're very happy, and they're singing about it, and all evangelic creation is singing about them because they're amazed they got there safely. So we've seen that whether you're in the church militant here on the earth or you're in the church triumphant in heaven, uh, God's got you. So no matter what happens, no matter whether there's a tsunami in your backyard, uh, you have nothing to fear. So that was that first interlude. Now, what is actually happening in chapter 10 is the second major interlude. These interludes are very important because the first six trumpets have shown us this increasing judgment of God against all those who have been persecuting the church. And then when we come to the sixth trumpet uh, and wait for the seventh trumpet, 
there's this interlude. And what we're going to learn, once again, is something very important about the time in which we're living, which is the time right before that seventh trumpet. So history's been marching on. All these six trumpets of judgment have been taking place. We're waiting for that last trumpet sound. We know that uh, from 1 Corinthians 15, when the, the last trump sounds, Jesus Christ returns. So we're waiting for that. We're right on, the, right on our tiptoes, waiting for the edge, we're right on the edge of history, ready, waiting for its consummation. Meanwhile, we're going to hit another interlude, and in this interlude, we're going to learn something very important about this period, the period between the, the first coming of Christ and the second coming. And it's, it's vital that we get this because this is basically uh, our purpose in life. You know, a lot of uh, folks, church folks especially, are reading The Purpose Driven Life you know, these past couple or three years, uh, however long it's been out, bestseller. Everybody wants to kind of figure out what is my purpose in life. Well, chapter 10 is going to help us with this. Let's take a look at it, chapter 10 of Revelation. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun, and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Then the angel I had, been sta- uh, I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, There will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Okay, we want to look today at our message to the nations. We're going to see that this mighty angel appears before us, before the seventh trumpet sounds explaining to us something very important about the church in this age. Yes, this church uh, is sealed, marked, protected. Yes, this church will be tribulated. It will, it will suffer many trials and be sorely tempted, and it will be tested, and, and it will be persecuted. So we know those things are true. We've learned that already in Revelation. But yes, it has a very important purpose, and that is to take the message of the gospel and publish it to the world as we were singing just a moment ago in our hymn. Now, the first thing we want to see uh, is that this is an interlude. And this interlude speaks of the period between the first and second coming. When we get to chapter 11, we're going to see that he's measuring the temple. 
And we'll see how that measurement and the 1260 days that are spoken of there speak of this period. Now, you understand I'm speaking from the idealist perspective. The futurist would say that this is an angel that comes at the end of the seven-year tribulation. And each of the trumpets represent an aspect or a year of the tribulation. And before that seventh year, that final year of the tribulation, here comes the angel speaking to those who are left on the earth after the church is raptured in chapter 4. You know that. We've talked about it before. But it seems clear to me that John is speaking to a church that is under tribulation. It's suffering. It's being persecuted. Its members are being put to death. John is in exile. So he's speaking about these trumpets of judgment from God against all wickedness and righteousness, even against the whole world order. And that's what all the chaos is about. God's hand is in it. It's coming from heaven. Meanwhile, in the midst of all this chaos, we hear the Word of God. It's given to us, and we do something with it. Now, notice, first of all, that God has revealed His mysterious plan. Now, I say that because if you look at the first verse, He says, I saw another mighty angel. Now, this angel, notice in verse 1, is coming down from heaven. Aha! Okay? Now, we know angels come from heaven, but John's making a point of it. This angel came down from above. So, okay, it has, it has just been in heaven. Now it's coming to earth. Notice, if you turn back to chapter 5, you'll notice in... Here we go. Uh, uh, chapter 5, verse 2. John says, when he got to heaven, I saw a mighty angel. All right? And that angel was asking, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll?" So it appears to most scholars he's making reference uh, to another angel because this first angel was in heaven who asked who's going to open the scroll. Remember, uh, the voice was heard, well, nobody's worthy to open the scroll. John cries because he wants to know God's message to us about the future of the world and about the meaning of its present existence. And then one is found who is worthy to open the scroll. That is our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. He opened the scroll. Now, here's another mighty angel coming down from heaven. What does he have? He has a scroll. So you see the connection. This angel is coming with what we believe to be that very scroll that was opened by the Lamb. And now that scroll is, is not only opened in the heavens so that those who are in heaven can understand the meaning of history and see how it's going to be consummated, but now that scroll is going to come down to earth. This is a very important point John is making about what he's seeing in God's mysterious plan. And we saw that that scroll, uh, in, in a, the broadest sense, was God's decree of whatsoever comes to pass. It is God's plan. And so only Christ is able to show us that plan. He's the only one that can open it for us. He's the only one that's worthy to reveal it to us and to teach us the secrets of God's cosmic plan. Now, God has everything planned out. We know that. The Bible teaches us. I mean, every blade of grass, every falling tree, every hair in your head, everything has been planned by God from all eternity. Massive intelligence. Can you imagine such a thing? And then the power to carry it out. But God reveals certain aspects of that plan to us. And we have things like, for example, that He created things to be beautiful and to be good and to be in order. And then it fell and He allowed that. And then He worked His plan for redemption. And that's the heart of the plan that John's talking about, that this angel is revealing. Now, the first thing we're going to notice then about, about this plan of God that's revealed is really His Word. His word to us in the scroll is that it is divine. We are told a mighty angel coming down from heaven. 
And we've seen in verse in chapter five, verse two, what this mighty angel is all about. His word is divine. That is very basic. But most of us, when we were taught in uh, academia how to think about sacred books, was in fairness to treat them all basically the same. They're all valued. Uh, they're all sacred. They are all treasured by the people who use them, uh, by all the religions, whether it's the Quran or the Upanishads or the Bible or whatever. What the Bible is saying about itself is that it came straight from heaven. And so you cannot, if you really want to know the Bible, uh, you can certainly learn much of its content intellectually by treating it like you would any other uh, self-proclaimed sacred book. But you really can't experience its life and power until you see it for what it is. It is God's voice to you. It is from heaven. It is divine. It claims to trump every other piece of literature in this world, including all the other sacred books. And you can say, well, that's awfully arrogant. It's only arrogant if it's not true. If it's true, then it would be arrogant to say that it weren't divine and unique. It makes that claim for itself. You don't have to believe it, but that's what it says about itself. And the Apostle Paul said about the Scriptures, all Scripture is God-breathed. That means it came right out of heaven. Yes, He did it through men. And He did it through sinful men. But He spoke through them in such a way that His Word was infallibly communicated in the sacred Scriptures. So what John is showing us from the very beginning, this scroll that's there is straight from heaven. It's divine. Secondly, His Word is inscripturated. It's on a scroll. He was holding a little scroll. Now, some would say that this is a little scroll, and the big scroll is the one in chapter 5. But most scholars suggest that those two words are simply used. They are two different words for little scroll and scroll. But they're being used interchangeably. The reason is, you know, we, we've before in these studies, we have looked at the fact that there are a number of manuscripts uh, from which we compile what we believe to be the original New Testament. We don't have the original documents. There are no original documents in any ancient writing whatsoever. You have no original documents of anything. You have only copies. We know that in the Scriptures we have the best attested document of any ancient document in the world. Bar none. There's not a close second. There's a very, very distant second. But we have, write, we have copies within 100 years of their writings. We have many copies within four or 500 years, which is unprecedented for an ancient document. And we happen to have thousands of pieces or whole pieces of Scripture. So you can compare all these to get back to what the original was. In this case, if you go back to the uh, second century, I'll take that back, early third century, it was the 200s, there is a papyrus with this chapter in it. So, I mean, this is a very early parchment. And uh, this parchment uh, has uses the word uh, scroll, not little scroll, throughout this chapter. You go to the next century, you have what's known as the Codex Sinaiticus, which is a, it's a, not a, no longer a papyrus. It's, it's more like a scroll, a parchment. And there you have a little scroll used in the first two instances in the first uh, part of chapter 10 and the word scroll used in the latter two instances. 
You go to the next century, and these are very well-attested uh, early New Testament parchments and, and, uh, and papyrus. And you go to the 4th century uh, Codex Alexandrinus, and you'll find that, that only one of the instances uses the word for little scroll. So what the scholars are saying is, that, that what this evidence suggests is, is that in the mind of those who are doing the copying, it made no difference. We're really talking about the same scroll. And there are other things that we've already looked at that suggest that we're talking about the scroll in chapter 5. So we're simply saying is that we're talking about the same scroll. Now what you'll notice is that it's in writing, front and back, which is once again within the Christian tradition to say that God reveals himself infallibly to us in the sacred scriptures. Now, he reveals himself to us in nature. We are seeing his fingerprints everywhere. But we have the special revelation of his love for his people. You wouldn't know that the people of God are sealed and protected by looking at a dogwood tree. You would know by looking at a dogwood tree that there is a God and he's powerful and he has uh, he has a real sense of aesthetic. You would know that from looking at the dogwood tree. But you only look from, by looking at the scroll, the inscripturated Word of God, that He has a special care for His people, He has a plan to save them, and He sent His one and only Son to do so. You only find that out in the Scriptures. That's the reason, gentlemen, that it's vital that you and I be students not only of the dogwood tree, but that we be students of the Bible so that we get to know God in all of His revealed uh, communication to us. Then you'll notice in verse 2, his word is universal. Look what this angel is doing. He's a mighty angel. He's got his legs, uh, in verse 2, planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Now, if you go back to the trumpets, the trumpet of God is announced on the sea and on the land and so on. So basically, what this interlude is saying is, that angel is standing astride uh, the, the land and the sea. And he's over it all. And he's holding the Word of God. Now, this, what this tells you is that the Word of God is for every single person. Now, once again, the way in which it is being undermined in our own day, in our own thinking, is that you know everybody basically has their own religion. And we don't want to disturb those religions. We want to just live out our Christian tradition here. Other people have their traditions. Uh, certainly we respect people of all religious affiliations. And we would die for their right to believe in them and to practice their religion. And I think that's what the, the American democratic experience is all about, is to live in harmony in a pluralist society by, uh, w- without putting it, the word Christian in our documents, it really is Christian principles that enable that to happen in the first place. And all I do is just simply say to you, check the world out and see if you find some in, in nice exceptions to the rule. But where you find freedom for all religions, you'll find the Christian influence. So Christians do, the Bible teaches, that we love our neighbors ourselves and we do not use the sword against those who disagree with us. So we're all for that. However, spiritually speaking, the Christian has consistently said through the ages that this gospel is for all the world. And it's our duty to take it into all the world. So his word is universal on the sea and on the land. And we just sang about it a moment ago. I'm sure you noticed. Then notice, fourthly, 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 where'd you go? Well, you know, this high-tech stuff, it's really hard to work this stuff. It'd be so easy just to have a button and use PowerPoint. Nope, not for me. We're going to do it the right way. His word is powerful. It says it's like the roar of a lion. 
like the roar of a lion. Look at verse 3. So this angel shouts. This huge voice reverberating throughout the world. It's just an unbelievable picture that John's getting. This angel with fiery legs reaching up to the heavens with an open scroll. The scroll has been opened, remember? Because Jesus was worthy to open it. He opens the scroll and lays it down before us. Here it is. And it's for all the world. And we get an interesting parallel in Amos 3. Uh, if you can't find most of you, you're just not going to be able to find Amos fast enough. Why don't you just let me read it to you? Uh, Amos 3, uh, verses 7 and 8 says this. When a trumpet sounds in a city, do not the people tremble? When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The sovereign Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Okay, so he speaks of a trumpet and the roar of a lion. Sound familiar? Once again, you can see John's getting his vision from right out of the Old Testament. God is giving him a new vision of old things coming to pass in a new age. So the word is powerful. And gentlemen, let me just tell you, you know, you, you think uh, you're all messed up. You know, you've blown it. Your life is lousy. You've got these bad habits. You just can't seem to get over them. I'm telling you, just take the book. Just take the book and let the Word of God minister to you. I'm telling you, it's powerful. Now, you may read it on any, any given day and with, with your sleepy eyes and your hard heart and say, I oh, don't know, that wasn't worth anything. And then about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, boom, that verse will hit you in the head. Or you may go three or four days and feel that way, and all of a sudden you open that book and you're reading along in course through a book of the Bible, and whammo, God speaks right to your heart. It's not because God's not speaking that it seems flat on some days. It's that your blooming head is flat on some days and you're not listening. You know, and if you don't understand that, ask your wife about it and she can explain it. Sometimes you're hard, it's hard to get through to you. And believe me, the Lord is in the same place. Uh, he can't get through to you sometimes. Uh, but the Word itself is very powerful. It shatters. Uh, it's like an anvil. Everything breaks on the anvil of the Word of God. It's living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. It pierces to the very division of spirit and soul. I mean, you can't divide that. But the Word of God can. And between bone and marrow, how do you divide that? The Word of God can. So the Word of God is powerful. Let that Word come into your heart and just devote yourself to learn it. And you'll find that you're beginning to be transformed by the power of the Word of God. Paul calls it dynamite. It's the power of God. Let that power into your life. It is scary. It's going to change you. But you know what? Most of the rest of us will enjoy the change. And you will too. You will too. And you'll see that the change that the Word of God brings in your life not only gets you ready for heaven, but it makes you so much more effective here. More effective in relationships, more effective in the use of your time, more effective in the management of your money, more effective in the way that you think about yourself and about your future, more effective on your attitudes, everything about it. It's a powerful word. And we see that from this angel who's shouting it out and makes the whole earth shatter. And the word, if you want to look at uh, human history uh, in the past 2,000 years, all you have to do is follow where the Bible has gone. If we had time, we could put a map up here and show you how the map has traveled, how the Bible has traveled throughout the world, and how peoples have been turned upside down everywhere the Bible went. In fact, uh, I believe it was Charles Hodge, the Presbyterian theologian, 150 years ago, who said that, you know, that the church does not 
give us the Bible. He says the Bible gives us the church. The Bible goes into a culture and changes it, and the church blooms out of it. It's the Word of God that's powerful, not human beings, even Christian human beings. The only reason we have power is because we're the angels or the messengers of this scroll of this Word of God in our own world. Secondly, notice that the Word is selective. Now, this is a very interesting tidbit. We don't talk about it very much, but it's very important. If you look in 3b, when he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. Okay, now we've got seven thunders. So the angel shouts, and then <coughs> seven times we hear this thunder. And it is intelligible. In other words, there's a message in these thunders, and John is hearing that message. He's going, oh, this will be a good one. I'm going to write that down. And then he hears a voice, not the voice of an angel. He hears another voice that tells him not to write. He says, when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, verse 4, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Now, some of you who like to just know every single thing are going, I want to know what those seven thunders said. And God has said, no. Some things are not right for you to know. And some things are for you to find out later. Some things are not for you to find out at all. And the Lord gives us what we need. And you'll notice there's a lot more He could tell us. A lot more. We just know that just the fringe of His garment. He's vast in His knowledge. He has created all things. He has ordained all things. He could tell us in this Bible, if he had thought it in our best interest, he could have just charted out a little schedule. said, okay, now in the year 1492, uh, we're going to send uh, old Chris over there to uh, do a little work on the western side of the Atlantic Ocean. He didn't do that. He could have charted everything. He could have told us what next year was going to be. But in his wisdom, he didn't do that. And there's a very good reason for it, isn't there? We're better off not knowing. <laughs> you know what? There's some things about 2005 I don't want to know until I get there. Why should I bother myself with it? I mean, there's more that's going to happen this year that's going to be sad to me than I can handle right now. If all of this year comes to your table right now and you have to deal with it today, you're going to walk out here a very depressed man, basically. So we don't know all that. And the other side of that is there is so much good that's going to happen to you this year Probably, you'd be so distracted and you wouldn't pay attention to what's in front of you. And the extremist case is there's so much good that's going to happen to you when you get to heaven, you'd go out of here and shoot yourself if you knew it all. If you knew it for sure, you'd probably just end it all right here and God has a purpose for us as we're going to see in this, in this chapter. So He hides things from us. And we are children. And we trust Him not only that what He has given us is true, but what He has given us is sufficient. Now think about this. It's sufficient. And if you ask questions and they can't be answered in the Bible, why don't you stop asking them because you don't need the answer. I'm not talking about science. I'm talking about theology. If there's an answer about God and His ways that you feel like you need to know and you can't get an answer out of the Bible, guess what? You don't need an answer. And you need to satisfy yourself with that. And a foolish man can ask more questions than a wise man can ever answer. And so there are lots of questions we can ask. And no one can give you the answers. The Bible intentionally doesn't give you certain answers. God says, seal it up. John, I don't want you to write about that. 
And you find the Apostle Paul, he'll say, you remember he said at one time, I was taken up into the highest heavens or the third heavens. And he said, I can't tell you about it. And there's some things probably in your experience. I don't know. Some of you may have had spiritual experiences. And you know what? There's almost no use even talking about it. Because it's too deep. It's too difficult to put words to. Sometimes you can't put words to it. And it's between you and the Lord. And John right here has the thing between him and the Lord. And it's not for public consumption. When we talk about our faith, we don't talk about everything we know. There's a principle here. If you're talking about to someone whom you're mentoring, you don't tell them everything you know in the first instance. You tell them gradually, don't you? And if you're witnessing, you don't just tell them everything you know. And if someone rejects the gospel, you don't keep telling them everything you know. That's called putting pearls before swine. You tell them what they need to know in the moment. A parent does the same thing. Sex education class for a five-year-old is quite different than for a 15-year-old. If some of you haven't figured that out, please see me at the conclusion of this meeting. You don't tell a five-year-old everything. You know the basic principle is you answer what they ask. And some of you feel like you have to go on and explain the whole thing, you know, and we won't go into it. But no, you just answer enough until they go, oh, and then they walk off and you got it until they're about 10, 11 years old. And then you explain it to them whether they want to hear it or not. So this is the principle that God's Word is selective and it's, it's perfectly chosen for us in this age for us to get through safely. So devote yourself to the things that He has revealed and devote yourself to the idea that He has protected you from knowing things that you don't need to know right now. It's a very interesting principle. Verses 5-7, through seven, His Word is sure. The angel raised his right hand to heaven. What does that mean? It means that he swears it's true. Why do you raise your right hand? Because of this. What does it mean to raise your right hand? If you're in a court of law, put your hand on the Bible and raise your right hand. You're raising your hand toward heaven and swearing by heaven. Heaven be your witness that what you say is true. That's what it means to raise your right hand. Look, look in Genesis 14. You have Abraham raising his right hand, swearing before heaven. You have uh, in Daniel 12:7 the same instance. And he swore by him. So the angel is swearing by heaven. Heaven be my witness. I just came from there. Heaven destroy me if I'm telling an untruth. That's what it means to raise your right hand. And he says, here's the truth. No more delay. It's coming. So this is a picture of the age in which we live. That the word is being revealed. It's being brought down to earth. It's being given to us by an angel. It's being given to us. Surely you notice how it's handed down. It comes from God to the Lamb, Christ, who gives it to the angel, who gives it to John, who gives it to us. And gentlemen, this is how you got the Word of God. It came down all the way. And then since John gave it, it's come through generation, generation, generation. Think about all the people that have protected the Word of God for you to have it in the 21st century. Think about all the people whose lives were at stake and they hid the Word of God and they protected it so that it wouldn't be destroyed. So God through the ages has providentially handed it down. That's the reason the word tradition, just in Latin, is traditio. That means to hand down. And the, the Christian truth is a Christian tradition because it's handed down from generation to generation, but especially handed down from the Father to the Son to the Apostles to the Church to us. So, it's a marvelous thing to be a recipient of the Word of God. Now, let's look at uh, verses 8 through 11. 
We saw in verses 1 through 7 that God has revealed his mysterious plan. But then I want us to notice in these last three verses that God has entrusted his plan to us. This is where the rubber meets the road. We are to be men who believe in this word because it came from heaven. We're to be men who also who take this word to our workplace, to our families, to our churches, to our community, to our nation and to the world. So we're going to see this word is entrusted to human beings. You might think this word is so precious. It must be entrusted to angels only. Don't put it in the hands of these sinful men. They'll blow it. They'll lose it like they do their car keys all the time. They'll forget it. They'll ruin it. They'll spit on it. They'll drop it. They'll forget their homework. The dog will eat it. Whatever. Who knows what will happen to it if you put it in the hands of men. It's a scary thing. That's exactly what is going to happen. If we look at this, we see, first of all, that men must take the scroll. He says to John, go, take the scroll. Look in verse 8. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So he says, take it. And he's saying the same thing to you. Take it. Take this divine book. Take it. Receive the responsibility of promulgating this scroll and the news that we're reading about in Revelation. The worldview that's revealed there. The relationship of God and His creation. The end of all things that is revealed there. The need to know Jesus Christ that's revealed there. Take this scroll. So, what do we do with it when we get it? First of all, he says, eat it. <laughs> what? <laughs> See, I thought you'd mess up. Instead of, you know, I give the book to you instead of using it and reading it. Eat it. That doesn't make any sense. Well, here's what he means by it. If you look in Ezekiel, you'll find the same thing. I won't turn there. But doesn't this sound familiar? Those of you who have been doing your Amen daily readings, you've read about Ezekiel. And he ate the scroll. That's exactly what John's recalling here. Right out of Ezekiel. And what does it mean? Well, in Ezekiel's case, the scroll also was telling God's Word to His people. And Ezekiel, you take it and you ingest it and you eat it. And of course, uh, Ezekiel had some uh, interesting experiences, much like John. First of all, it'll be sweet. We're told that the, the law of God, the Word of God, is sweeter than the honeycomb itself. It's like honey. It's sweet to us. It's sweet because when you read the Word and really begin to understand it, you see the love of God for you. Yes, you understand that you're created in His image and you, you failed, you sinned against Him, that you deserve these punishments, His wrath that are shown in the seals and the trumpets and the bowls of wrath that are going to come next. You deserve all that. But you read in the Bible that He loves you, He has sealed you, He's protecting you, and He's giving you a place in heaven. He'll keep you to the end. Boy, is that ever sweet. Nothing has changed my life ever like that. And it has. And it continues to change my life as I learn more and more of the depths of that love of God. You will not find this love anywhere else in the universe. There's no other religion that will teach you this love. You can't get it in any other book unless it's quoting the Bible. The Bible is the only place that reveals the love of God like this. And so it's sweet to you. It's also sweet because you find that it, it informs your life. The Bible will start to order not only your internal life, what you think about God, what you think about yourself, what you think about this world, your internal thoughts. It starts, to, it starts to order your family. You start to notice that if you believe the Bible, 
and you start to live it out and you start to teach it to those around you by the way that you live and the principles that you use in life, your family starts to change. Your relationship starts to change. You notice that your business starts to change. You notice that your reputation in this community starts to change. You notice that your usefulness in the community and you notice that your zeal to help other people changes. You notice your whole outside world is beginning to take on a different shade uh, of... Uh, is a rosy, uh, rosier shade. It takes on a different view. So it's sweet to you, and it's sweet because you're able to help other people with it. And, of course, the sweetest thing of all externally is if any of you have ever had the experience of leading someone else to faith in Jesus Christ. Boy, is that sweet. Whew. And it's all because of the Word of God. And I've noticed when I've led people to Christ that it's like an out-of-body experience. I, I, I can't believe I get to witness such a thing. Because it is not uh, primarily myself. God is using me just as He does you in those kinds of things or He uses you in many other ways. But you're just very aware that the Lord is at work and His Word is powerful and He's changing a life right in front of your face and you're watching that miracle happen. That's sweet. And I have to say in ministry or in life, outside of your own salvation, there's nothing sweeter than that. But you also notice it's sour or bitter. Why is it bitter? Well... Because as soon as you give yourself to Christ, as soon as you really believe with deep conviction the things He's revealed in the Word, He hands you a cross. There's the cross of Christ for you, and then there's the cross of Christ in you. There's His cross, and there's your cross. And the Apostle Paul, he said, May I never boast of anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That's an internal cross. That's a cross that sanctifies. That's his own cross. And Jesus said, you know, you cannot even follow me unless you deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me to my cross. So if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, put that old cross back on your back and let's go. Sweetness, sourness, beauty and ugliness, glory and suffering. All at the same time. If you want to see this in a literary sense, just read Peter's first epistle. And you'll see that the glory comes through the suffering in this broken world. One day it's not going to be like this. The glory will come through no suffering whatsoever in heaven. But now the sweetness comes through a sour taste as well. It's bitter for us because as soon as you give your life to Christ and stand up in a world that has not given its life to Christ, there is persecution, there's attack, there's hostility, there's suspicion. You know, you get called all kinds of names. Uh, my dad, when he retired, uh, he was often in Florida playing golf with his buddies and he went to church basically every Sunday. I don't know if it's because his wife made him, <laughs> but I suspect, no, he wanted to go to church himself. So, well, you know, my, my dad was not a religious person, okay? He, he was the kind that would always tell me these jokes. I said, Dad, don't tell me those jokes. I can't forget them. And, you know, tell me a joke I can repeat. I'm a preacher, you know. I don't... And uh, he was a, what I call a, a Martin Luther type Christian. Uh, so he was not a goody two-shoes, but he did go to church every Sunday while his friends were out there on the golf course. And they called him preacher. <laughs> called him preacher. Just because he went to church once a week. And uh, my dad, you know, had a good sense of humor, and he, he was, you know, didn't, didn't bug him too much, I don't think. But, you know, people may call you deacon so-and-so or preacher so-and-so just because you do some little thing. And that's not a big deal. We know that. But it's just a little taste of some of the sourness that comes. They were making fun of him. 
And there's no way you can really be a follower of Christ and not, ha- not have this world order make fun of you. And when they get their chance, they'll do more than make fun of you. And certainly we see that in Revelation, don't we? With the churches being persecuted in the first century. So it's bitter. So we take the scroll and we taste the scroll. Now, what does he mean by eating it? What he means is, before you get up and start talking about the Bible to everybody else, take the Bible for yourself. Ingest it. In order for you to take the scroll in the proper way, the first thing you do is take it for yourself. Physician, heal thyself. And before you become a preacher, become a physician. And learn how that Bible applies to you. Take it into your heart. And you will find there's sweetness and bitterness. Because that Word is going to encounter some things you enjoy. You like your pornographic website. It's very painful to let it go. But you let the light of the Word of God come in, you realize you're abusing other women, you're paying them to do things that are demeaning to them. You're also demeaning your wife if you're married. You're also demeaning the Lord who is to be your delight. And you're involved in sexual immorality. All these, the light just shines and all that crap. And you painfully let go of it. It is painful. Why? Because women are beautiful. It's fun to look at them. That's the whole problem with sin. It is fun. I don't care what the preachers say. It's fun. I tried it. I do it. I enjoy it every, almost every single time. I don't enjoy the aftertaste, but I enjoy what, I, what I'm doing. So there's a bitterness. Because in this life, in this broken world, my body is broken. My flesh is broken. I want to do this stuff. It's not, it's not helpful for me or my neighbor. But the Bible begins to shine. I see there's a bigger life. There's a pure life. There's a larger beauty in which I was never engaged before. And I want to be, I want to enjoy that aesthetic. I want to enjoy that truth. I want to live in that light. And I begin to let go of things that otherwise were attracted to me. The light comes into your life and you begin to see, you know, what I said to my wife yesterday, I've been rationalizing for 24 hours. You know, if she hadn't said that, I wouldn't have said that. If she didn't do that, I wouldn't have done that. And the light of the Word comes in, you realize you've been forgiven all your filthy sins by someone who has a right to throw you right into hell forever. And he didn't do it. And the light comes in. And the pain of taking the initiative to go say that you're sorry and to ask for forgiveness begins to take place in your life. It's, it's, there's a sourness. It's difficult. But it's, it's the other side of sweetness. It's because you're, in a broken, you're living in a broken body. You stole from your customer. You stole from your company and your expense account. And the light of the Bible starts to come and you've eaten the Word. And you've ingested it. And it's starting to give you indigestion. You're getting a sour stomach. Why? Because it's, it's doing something to you. And so you've got to change. And you've got to repent. You've got to repay your client. You've got to repay your company. And you've got to come clean. And that's bitter. I know I've done it when I became a Christian. It's very bitter. But you know what? You get that bitterness out. Your sour stomach leads to other things. And you get it out. And your life then begins to take on health. If you're overweight like I am, and you're out of shape like I am, as soon as I decide it's time to go exercise again, it's going to be a bitter experience. <laughs> I promise you. I'll come in doubled over like this, and you'll know what happened to me. You know, I've, taken, I've hit the road again. There's a sweetness. I don't breathe as heavily when I get up to the second story. But there's a bitterness. It hurts. 
And that's what God is saying from heaven. John, take the scroll and eat it. Don't just tell others about it. Don't just tell other people, hey, I found a great system of life and I found a really fancy book and I heard some really great theological discussions on Thursday morning. Eat it! Learn what that Bible does to a life, first of all, in your own life, not by telling somebody else about it and see what it does to their life. Find out for yourself. You are to be a witness. What is a witness? Somebody who's seen something, somebody who's heard something, somebody who's done something. Somebody who has an experience they can tell about. And the problem with the superficial witnessing of people like ourselves in this Western country is that we've got a theology that's about five miles wide and half an inch deep. Nobody's been eating. Let the Word of God get a hold of you. It is powerful. And let it have its way with all the bitterness. You may have to go talk to a counselor. You may have to go talk to a pastor. You may have need to go talk to a very close friend and start to get some of the junk out of your life. That's the bitterness of the Word of God taking over your life. It's temporary. It only lasts as long as you live. And then you get into heaven and there's no more bitterness. It's not going to last long. For some of you, it's not going to last very long at all. So have at it. Now let it have its way. And all you're doing is, first of all, making your life an offering to the Lord. This is what it means to make your life a living sacrifice. You sacrifice all the things you've been clinging to. You let go of it. You let the bitterness of the Word rip it out of your life. And you let the goodness and the sweetness of the kingdom of God start to take over and remake your life. And then you begin to change the world around you because they look at your life and they now take you seriously. Gentlemen, some of you are not being taken seriously. And the reason is, some of you are going down there, and the younger guys know it, you're going down here to the strip joints and hanging out and drinking a few uh, brews, and you think nothing of it. And some of you have even made it known that's what you like to do, that that's cool entertainment. Some of you have just lowered your standards so much that you are absolutely incredible in terms of your believing anything about Jesus Christ. There's a confusing message going out because you haven't eaten the Word of God. Eat it. Become it. You know, anybody knows that a leader is one who incarnates the vision, right? A leader is one who casts a vision and communicates it But the leader who has a vision and the people follow him is the leader who follows and incarnates his own vision. You know that in business. It's true. These level five leaders that uh, uh, James, what's his name, writes about in Good to Great. What is a level five leader? He's one who has a vision and it's, it's in his bones. And he's a humble person. He's a quiet person. He multiplies leaders. But he's deeply convicted by it. He's a humble person. But he's deeply convicted by it. Everybody who knows him knows That's the target, and he's sold out to it. Well, if it's true in the secular world, is it not true in Christianity? You know it's true. That's the reason that before John is told to do anything with this word, he's told to eat it in its sweetness and in its sourness. Then, lastly, how much time we have? Six minutes. We must tell the scroll's message. Now, look at verse 11. This is a wonderful verse. He is now told by the same voice, You must prophesy or preach or evangelize or whatever you want to call it. You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. That's a fourfold description of the peoples of this earth. 
kings is traded out. That's uh, usually not used in that phrase, like in chapter 5 of uh, Revelation. But a fourfold description of the peoples of the earth. And you're to prophesy again about what's going to happen to everybody. In other words, you are to tell again the great plan of God. All right? You've taken the scroll. That means you've taken the responsibility for the Word of God in this world. You've taken it. Secondly, you ate it. You put it, you applied it to your own life. Thirdly now, you're going to go tell others about it and see that they're told about it. You must prophesy again. That is, verbally communicate. You say, well, you know, in the business world, uh, you can ruin some really good relationships. Uh, on the golf course, you can really mess up a great 18-hole round by talking about Jesus, and especially when you're in a fairway. Uh, if you're in the rough, people might be willing to talk about Jesus. But you're in the fairway, man. Just forget it. You can really mess up a tennis game or whatever, or a nice long trip with somebody or a vacation. But, but what I try to do is just demonstrate the gospel. Gentlemen, we've already said that your gospel is not credible unless you're demonstrating it, unless it's oozing out of your pores. We've already said that, and that's true. But it's both and. It's not either or. If you do not interpret your life, people are left to interpret your life like this. Oh, isn't he a marvelous man? He is a good man. Boy, he's got his act together. That's, that's their interpretation. Is that the interpretation that will help them? Well, he's a good man. Maybe I can be good too. No, I can't be good because I'm just not that good. You know? And all in all, he's, it's all man-centered. That's the interpretation. The reason you must tell of God's plan, his redemptive plan for history, is because people need an interpretation of your life. If Jesus died on the cross and you had no interpretation... You'd think that, well, some religious nut got hung on a tree by the Romans like a thousand other people got hung on the tree by the Romans. What was so special about that crucifixion? Because of the apostolic interpretation and Jesus' own interpretation. So the interpretation of the event is necessary. The interpretation of your life is necessary. You must explain your life. And so when the doors are open, you've prayed for the doors to be open, the door is open, someone says, why do you do things that way? Someone asks you a why question, there's a because in there. And if you're a Christian, the because is Christ. If you're going to get there, if someone really knows you, do they know Christ? They'll have to know Christ if you're being honest. You tell, you verbally communicate what you know. Just because we don't know everything doesn't mean that we don't tell something. We know the seven thunders have been sealed. You don't know everything. And as a matter of fact, none of us knows everything that's even been revealed because we don't know our Bibles very well. But you know something. You know what Jesus Christ has done for you. Do you remember when the Gadarene demoniac was delivered of all of his demons? Jesus ordained him as an evangelist that day and told him to go testify. Why? He didn't know any theology. He had never been to Bible college. He was a demoniac yesterday and today he's sane. What does he know? I'll tell you what he knows. He knows he's sane and he knows who did it. And that's what you know. If you know nothing else, if you're a believer, that's what you know. That someone's touched you and you know his name and you know where other people can get help. So you, just because you don't know everything doesn't mean that you can't say anything. Secondly, <laughs> again, can you imagine John? Now, oh Lord, I'm an old man. I've done it. Been there, done that. You know, I hear some of the older women, if you're listening to this, women, listen very carefully at this point. They'll say, you know, I don't help in the nursery anymore. I did that one as a younger lady. That's for the younger ladies now. Been there, done that. That's, that's a sign of old age. If you're thinking like that, you are as old as you look. 
the beautiful thing is, this room is full of people who are not as old as they look. I'll tell you why. They've heard that again over and over and over. And over and over again, they've taken the scroll and they've eaten it and they've seen that other people hear about it over and over and over again. John, one more time, buddy. And then tomorrow, John, one more time, buddy. My Lord, I'm 85 years old. Again, John. And so John is being told with all the witnessing he's been doing for the entire first century, we're going to do it again. Now, lastly, what about? (laughs) Good news. Oh, go tell people about God's judgment. Boy, that'll thrill them. Well, they need it more than you think they do. They need to know about his judgments. He says, tell them about people's nations, languages, and kings. That is, tell them about what I've just shown you. So you tell them there is a God in heaven and he is a judge. And we just sang a minute ago, tell, tell all the nations that God is love. And we tell them that God is love. You know what we also tell them? God is judge. His love doesn't make any sense unless they know he's a judge. What is his love doing? It's saving you from his judgments. So you have to tell everything that you know that's relevant for someone who needs to know him. And they need to know he's a judge. And they're under his wrath. And he's made a provision in Christ. And there's a way to receive that provision through faith in him and following him and walking with him as his disciple. So that's what's being given to us about the interlude. Just take a little pause right now between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. We've heard how the sixth trumpet's God is reacting in this world to all the evil and all the rebellion and especially to all the persecution of God's people around the world. He's acting in nature and through human beings. He's judging. He's announcing all of His wrath against all the unrighteousness of men. But just hang on just a minute before the final close. Don't forget, during all this chaos, He's given the Word to the world. He has given it to us to eat it and to make it our own personally. And He's given it to us to tell it. We now are the little angels. Angel means messenger. We're the angels on the face of the earth having received the scroll from this gigantic angel with fiery legs with a foot on the sea and a foot on the land. So, my fellow angels, (laughs) go out into the world. Live it out. Take it. Live it out. As God gives you opportunity, You communicate what Jesus means to you. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for this scroll that reveals to us the scope of human history and the meaning of it all. We are awestruck at Your power and Your greatness, at Your holiness and Your judgments. We are even more awestruck that You love sinners like ourselves. And we would digest and ingest that love and grace today and enjoy all that You've done for us in Jesus Christ. Lord, may it shine through in even the most subtle of deeds done today and thoughts thought and words spoken. And Lord, we would take the scroll and not only ingest it, but we would communicate it to others around us. Give us sensitivity to take advantage, to exploit the opportunities You set before us to bless other men and women. We especially pray that You'll help us as we seek to communicate with our families and closest friends, those whose names are constantly upon our minds for whom we're concerned, and help us to be the angels in this world. For we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, the Word incarnate. Amen. God bless you, Jansen.